We're going to be in Luke chapter 6, so if you have your Bible, turn there. If you don't, there should be enough of the Scripture printed on your sheet that you should be able to follow along pretty closely. What we're going to do is we're going to do some catching up first, like we often do, and then we're going to uh, work our way... We're going to work our way to our discussion points. Um, today we're going to talk about guidelines for the life of being a disciple, catching up part here. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath is the first part. Um, Jesus is worth following. He's the king. I'm just going to have these, these points here. Uh, let me read this passage for you briefly and then we'll get going. It says, On the Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain, rubbing them. In their hands, but some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David said when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. We have this first story. Um, Oh, hey, before I get there, this, this idea that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath means that he's worth following. He is. King of all, he's Lord of all. He, um, I think, we're getting low on battery here. This thing is not really working yeah, well, is it? Songs, really yeah, people have a tendency, however, to elevate rituals <laughs> or traditions that develop out of something good to the same level as decrees from God, and that is what had kind of happened here with these Pharisees. They had even added to these uh, rules. Jesus had demonstrated um, in these two stories that he is the king, he's the Lord over even the most treasured, the most sacred of religious expressions, which is the Jewish Sabbath. The first example we had here was the um, harvesting on the Sabbath. So the law said what? You guys know about the, the, the Jewish Sabbath. What did the law tell them? Can't nobody work. Yeah, you, you rest on the Sabbath. Or as they say in Pacla, can't nobody work. Um, but, uh, but what did Jesus' disciples do, according to the story? So they're walking through the grain fields, and they're grabbing kernels of corn, and they're rubbing them between their hands, and they're creating grain, and they're eating it. And what's going on is the, the people who are following Jesus, the Pharisees, see this going on, and they say, that's work, and that's not allowed. And they have elevated the traditions of man, which was this idea of absolutely nothing, not even um, rubbing your hands together to generate some grain. They were making a snack for themselves. Uh, they were hungry. And it's interesting that the religious leaders were angry and they confronted them about this. But Jesus confronts their wrong priorities, keeping the laws of man over keeping the laws of God. That is, often you'll see this in the scriptures, the people are so consumed, these Pharisees are so consumed with these very particular laws, the Sabbath laws, and their interpretation of these laws, very strict. And Jesus is saying, you've got your priorities all wrong. Let's keep going, though, because it actually shows in another story as well where Jesus heals on the Sabbath. In verse 6, it starts there. Yes? I have a question. Sure. Um, <coughs> if, if, isn't it God's law that there's no work on the Sabbath? Yeah, the law is what? Technically. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Yeah. Okay, so, so what had happened? They keeping the laws of man over the laws of, they twisted so, the law of God? So they added to it. Okay. So what happened was that the Pharisees, over time, they would ask themselves, okay, so what does it mean to keep the law holy, or keep the Sabbath day holy? What does it mean that we should not work, we should rest like God rested? And they would make all these rules and regulations, and it became a burden. So they made it ridiculous. They made it ridiculous, yes. And Jesus even goes to the point of saying, you know, you're straining, well, he has a very funny picture. Jesus says, you're straining at gnats 
like you know what a strain is, right? If you if you strain noodles or something, you have a little grate, pour the water through the noodles stay, everything else goes through. You're straining at gnats. You've got these tiny little screens. You're getting gnats out of your water, but you're swallowing camels. Hmm. And that you're you're so worried about the littlest detail, but you're missing the big picture. And that's kind of what's going on here. They're so consumed with this tiny little detail that they miss right in front of them is the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus the Messiah. I totally miss it because they're so consumed with these little tiny details of the law that they themselves put on top of the scripture. Does that make a little more sense? So we have also this other story right after it where um, Jesus is, it says, um, verse 6, on another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man who was there whose right hand was withered. And the word withered there just means um, dried or shrink, shrinkle, and shrinked. Shrunkle? How would you say that? Shrunken? Shrunken? Shrinked? No, shrunken. Uh, withered, dried up hand. Um, what is important about that? Notice his right hand was withered. What do you, what do you catch? Dominant hand. Normally it's someone's dominant strong hand. And it's withered so he can't do work. Yeah. So a person's hand is withered. What's wrong, what's wrong with a withered hand? You can't grab anything. You can't do anything. You can't act. You, your whole livelihood is, is in that. As a man, especially in this time, his livelihood would have been caught up in that <coughs> or hindered. Um, the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he would. So he said to the man with withered hand, this is an interesting story in that Jesus, I don't think I put this, no, I he doesn't wait for the withered man, the man with the withered hand, to come to him. Jesus actually goes to this man who has a withered hand. He, he seeks him out. Jesus is drawn to the withered hand. He, he's drawn to this man. He goes to him and he finds him. He knows what they're saying and he says, "Come and stand here. Basically, come and be in the middle." So, as, as you might know, you might not know this, but the way the way we're teaching here is very Western. I'm up here, up in the front, and all of you are out there. But what would often happen here is they would have a circle of people and Jesus would stand in the middle and he would talk around, or the teacher would stand in the middle and they would talk around. And Jesus calls this man out to the middle and he stands in the middle and knows what Jesus says. He says to them, I ask you, he asked them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? And after looking around at them, he said, stretch out your hand. And he did so and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another how they, what they might do to Jesus. Jesus, even though he's doing good, is making enemies. He has no regard for the man-made laws and restrictions placed on the people. He's concerned with life and health. I just mentioned this. The withered hand can't hold on to anything. It's weak and fragile. Withered is dried up, yet Jesus sees this as an opportunity to heal. And I don't want to get too bogged down in these details because I'm just kind of setting the stage for what we're going to talk about in a moment. So what it all means. One, Jesus was accumulating enemies among the religious leaders. He was reorienting their worldview, and they didn't like it. So his followers should expect opposition as well. If you're a practicing Christian disciple of Jesus, then you will face times of opposition and difficulty along the way. In fact, if you don't get any opposition from the world, you need to ask yourself if you're really following Jesus. Um, the last uh, section here before we really get into our pastor catching up stage here is the idea of the calling of the 12. Jesus actually takes 12, apostles, uh, 12 disciples uh, and calls them out. First he prays to God in preparation, then he names uh, 12 uh, who he called apostles. The apostles are the special 12. They are the sent ones. I don't know why it's backwards here, but sent out. Apostle Apostle means one who is sent. So Jesus calls these special disciples. 
We often talk about Jesus' disciples when we think about the 12. But really, those are the 12 apostles. The disciples are many disciples of Jesus. So he names these special disciples, and he actually names them there in the, uh, in the text. Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Um, Wait, can you say that one again? I'm sorry. Say what again? The names? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got Peter. This is in verse 14 of chapter 6. Peter. Simon Peter or just Peter? It's Simon Peter, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So his name was Simon, but Jesus changed his name to Peter in, Ma- in Matthew chapter 16. Remember this? You are si- Remember Matthew chapter 16? He says, you are Simon, but, uh, or you are Peter, but upon this rock I'll build my church. Kind of a play on words, because Peter means rock. Okay. I was wondering, I was like, you know, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus named him <laughs> Peter. Okay. So is he often called just Peter, or is he called Yeah, he's normally called Peter. Sometimes he's called Simon Peter. Very rarely he's just called Simon. There's also a Simon here called Simon the Zealot. Uh-huh. And a Zealot was like a, it was a political party, actually. It's a bunch of political, uh, it's almost like terrorists. Is it like is that a good way to say? Like zealous, being zealous? Yeah, they were, they, were, um, they were probably what's called the Sicari, which was a guys who had um, sword, uh, short swords, uh-huh. and they would uh, perform guerrilla warfare. Uh-huh. Kind of cool. They were, they were against, uh, politi- they, were, they were political uh, rebels, and... Uh, that probably is who that's referring to. If you want to study some more on that, I have some books you can read. But we're not going to get tied up into that. There, there's a lot we could do that, but uh, we're going to talk about rejecting our natural impulses. Uh, rejecting our natural impulses. This is an interesting um, section. We've got two sections, really. Rejecting our natural impulses, which is 20 through 26. And then, if you flip the page over, on the back of that first page, you'll see uh, down in the middle of that, embracing Jesus' value system, which is the opposite. So as first, we have to figure out Get rid of uh, our natural impulses uh, to do wrong and embrace Jesus' way of doing things. This is about guidelines for the life of a disciple. How is a disciple supposed to live? This is called the Beatitudes. Uh, You guys are probably familiar. Some of you are familiar with the Beatitudes. Um, And these are the Beatitudes as recorded in the Gospel of Luke. So let's have somebody read this. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to divide you guys into groups again. Um, And what we have is we have a group who's going to cover... 20 through 26, you have the Beatitudes right there, the blessings. You have the chart, and you have questions to walk through. And the chart, fill out, blessed are you who are, blank, fill it out. For what reason? Fill out that blank. And then who does Jesus call blessed? Just kind of sketch out some answers to those questions. Turn the page over. The woes and the warnings. I have another group here who's going to cover that. You're going to go all the way down, and then we'll and we'll come to a break. And, or should we just go ahead and... Why don't we do it in three groups? We'll do Jesus' value system, the same kind of thing with a box, and then you have a little bit of um, something to fill out there. Say, well, let's wait on that. Let's just do the first two, and if we get to the last one, we'll do it. So let's divide you guys right in the middle. So this group over here, you can circle up in your chairs and get in discussion, talk right here. This group over here, kind of get together and talk. You guys are going to be the first group. You're going to cover uh, 20 through 23, these blessings, these beatitudes, and then you guys are going to cover the woes and the warnings. And verses 24 through 26, and uh, elect someone who can speak for your group, and we will uh, assemble back together in about, say, 12 minutes. All right, let's wrap it up. You guys getting close to the end of your discussion questions? Sort of? Oh, yeah, we're done. I'm sorry.
You were where you were. Okay, let's talk about the first group over here. You Let's read your passage. Somebody who's going to read your passage, uh, and then somebody uh, talk about your questions. Um, who wants to read it? All right, go ahead. Very good. Um, what your your chart there? Uh, blessed are the what? Okay, the word blessed. I wanted to point this out. Um, is the Greek word makarios? I don't know how you say it? But uh, it's happy. That's where we get our, our word beatitude. It's a it's the Latin version of happy. So the idea of blessed isn't just that. It's like bless you. <laughs> it's not that, and it's not bless your heart. Have you ever met a southern woman who says bless your heart? It's not normally good. It's like, that boy, he's so ugly, bless his heart. You know? That's not what it means in, in this. This means happy is the person, or fulfilled, or happy, or blessed. Okay? Is it Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Bless. They, uh, there's a person who is happy. Yeah. Happy are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Question. So God's kingdom. What is God's kingdom? Heaven. Okay. Is it more than that? The world. Okay. His glory. Okay. Okay. Um, there are there as many there are so many ways of thinking about the kingdom of God. Let me just boil it down to a couple different ideas. One is that, <clears throat> of course, God's literal rulership of the world. In that um, there is, the Bible does tell us that in the end times, in the end of days, once things are fully completed and done with, um, he says, we will rule and reign with him as Christians. Okay, it's in Revelation, the very end of the Bible. That's not, I don't think, the entire story, though. I think also you see a lot of the parables and a lot of the things in the Bible that talk about the kingdom of God often are associated with the idea of God's rule even in our hearts. Okay? God's kingdom, God's rule, wherever it is. And when God is ruling and reigning, we possess the kingdom of God even within us, in a sense. It's not fulfilled. It's not its perfected form. But it's not like we, it's not like we had to think of God's kingdom as a thing that is physical, is a sense of God's reign. And when you allow God to reign, the way I put it, I want to think here, yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's easier to give up all and follow Christ when you don't have much to give up. When you're poor, it's easy to follow, it's easier to follow God, actually. And I know, and I know this is the case, just objectively speaking, in one sense. We were in um, Philippines. My wife and I were talking about that just a minute ago. We were talking about going to different countries. We met so many people who were missionaries, who were like leaving everything and going to these tiny little islands. You know why it was easy for them to leave everything and go to tiny little islands and serve God off of nothing? Because they were already living off of nothing. Like, 
for you, I, and I even know this, when I, um, when I was called to, mini- to, to the preach, called and uh, the Lord worked in my heart to call me into ministry, I was a freshman in college. I just finished my first year at Columbus University. I didn't have a whole lot of money. I had, like, no wife, no children, no career. I didn't have a whole lot. And so to make a change, to change everything in my life, it was a big deal. It was the biggest moment in my life that I could point to, yet when I look back, it really wasn't that big. I mean... Who was I responsible for? Me. <laughs> now I have three children, a wife, a job, a house, a mortgage, two cars, you know, lots of, lots of stuff. And we just moved houses this summer. And it was a job. And we're still, like, doing all this construction on our house and stuff, our new house, our old house that we're making, you know, we're doing all this remodeling and stuff. And there's a lot of work I put into that, a lot of heart and soul. After we're done with this house, I would feel like I put myself into this project. And then afterwards, if God were to say, hey, I want you to get up and move to South Sudan, you know, if they would have me, they'd probably take me, chop my head off immediately. You know, this is not really friendly towards people like myself. But if God were to say, do that, I'm not speaking hyperbolically. If God were to say, do that, I would have a very hard time as human, humanly speaking. Can you see why? I'm not rich. I'm a lot richer than I was when I was 19. I do. And compared to the world, when you go out, and I encourage anybody who thinks they're poor, do some traveling and see the world and see how people really live. <coughs> you are the richest, even the poorest people. This is what I like to say. And please excuse me. Please don't take offense. Please don't be mad at me, okay? But in our America... Our poor people have a weight problem. Think about that for a moment in the context of, our, of the world, where even the poorest people in our country have weight problem because they have access to food. When in the world, the poor people eat, the poorest people have no access. Okay? You understand what I'm saying? I'm not, I'm not casting, I'm not being mean or anything. I'm just saying in context, it's unbelievable how much we have. And it's sometimes it's harder to serve God when you have a lot. Does that make sense? Okay, I think that's a lot what's going on here. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the king. You can allow God to rule so much easier when you have nothing to lose. It's harder when you have everything. That's why Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to enter in the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Okay. <coughs> Blessed are you who are hungry for now, for you shall be satisfied. Um, any comments you want to make? Here's, here's what I filled in. Do you want, do you have... What did y'all say about any of this stuff? Anything extra I had? You'll be satisfied. Physical hunger can never be fully satisfied. We are still living. We can only see glimpses of satisfaction. It's supposed to be end parentheses. That's fine. I, see, I'm kind of, I guess I was overachieving. Most of you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Even the sorrows of life are temporary at their worst. I mean, I, I, again, I hate to be morbid, but think about it. In the terrible, most terrible event in my life has been 9-11, I can imagine. I remember watching it on TV as a, as a 17-year-old and just being blown away by, by the event and, and thinking, this is really happening. This is really happening. And all the people who died, it's t- horrible, it's a tragedy, but every person who died, that was it. It's not like they had to endure the pains of a thousand people's death. They had their own pain. They had their own death to endure, and that was it. Even the physical, terrible things we endure, the most horrible things we endure, they'll be done. So even the sorrowful things of the world, they will be done. They're temporary. They're not as bad as they could be. 
when people abuse you or value you, etc., rejoice that day comes because it's the opposite of what you might want to do. Rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. So your questions that I asked you guys to come up to ask, what does Jesus, ooh, well, who does Jesus call to be blessed? <clears throat> Good. And why do you think most people try to escape these states? Good. And let me say that actually what happens is, is when we have riches and when we are fed and when we're happy, we have a false sense of, manip- a false sense of security, a false sense of invincibility. Because all of us really are dependent on God. And all of us really are very weak. And all of us really are poor. And we all need God. But what happens is sometimes it takes being poor, being sad. Have you ever noticed that when something terrible happens, people are driven to God? You ever notice that? <coughs> What happened? They were reminded about their frailty. They were reminded of their humanity. They were reminded about the, the situation where they exist in this world that is so fragile. Right? When, when you're rich, when you got everything going for you, and when you're happy, you're not worried about death. You're not worried about horrible things. You're just having fun. Um, people try to escape these states... Um, because, uh, but how should the Christian respond? Well, when facing struggles, how should the Christian response respond to this? Good. Good. There is, a, um, there is a chapter, if you guys haven't, uh, you might want to mark this down. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, it says something that I've gone to and I, I, in many of my counseling, people who have gone through terrible things. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, Blessed be the, uh, in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In other words, when we go through terrible things, God gives us his comfort. And then when other people go through terrible things, the same comfort that God gave us, we can give to other people. And God uses that, uses us as a channel to bless other people. So you look at your life, you're like, my life stinks. My parents are split up. My life stinks. I just failed the test. My life stinks. My... My kids are rebelling. My oh, you're not in that stage yet. But you know, whatever. Uh, my my dog died. My my friend ran away. Whatever the whatever the situation is, I guess I meant to say that reverse. <laughs> my friend died. My dog ran away. There we go. <laughs> I didn't mean for it to come out like that. Whatever your struggle, it's real and it's serious. You can help someone else through that. So write that down and use it. Um, what principle should we remind ourselves? Anything else you guys want to add? God is greater than our problems. There you go. Perfect. God is greater than our problems. That's great. Really good. Any other comments about this passage, you guys? Any highlights or questions you had besides what we just now discussed? Going back to the um, trying to keep joy through the pain, 
were whole all the time, like we felt complete all the time, right. it'd be a lot harder to shine a light. It's harder to shine a light through a solid object than it is to something that has holes in it. Yeah. And Sure, and even you could say the similar thing about darkness. Whenever there's darkness, then you can see light, and if there's everything's bright, you can't see the extra, you can't see the light, and and there's a contrast of our of the darkness of this world. We get to see God's glory, all the great. Let's go over to this other group, the woes and warnings. Uh, a woe, um, a woe is a declaration of what did you guys put down? Coming, coming, uh, certain. You had to write, you had to see there. That was good. But what you're looking for is certain judgment. Woe is certain judgment. Um, it's the idea of woe upon you. It's a certain judgment, uh, something that is going to come. And uh, who wants to read this passage for us, verses 24 through 26? Okay, Ben. Woe you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you. Yeah, so uh, what did you guys come up with here um, for, uh, this is like the opposite of what happens earlier. Uh, let's, what are the questions I had for you guys? Why do you think he declares woes on these individuals? Is anything wrong with being rich? Anything wrong with laughing? Anything wrong with people speaking well of you? What did you come up with? Okay. Is that pretty good? Yeah, I think that's pretty. That's pretty uh, good analysis there. Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your consolation, your comfort. You've already received. Uh, when uh, I think the point is, is that um, this isn't how we are to pursue. Let me see if I got this written down somewhere. If this isn't what we are to, pre- oh, I didn't have that written down right. Um, why do you think he declares woes on these individuals? No, there's nothing wrong with being rich itself. It's when you pursue riches above God, and when that becomes your comfort, when that becomes what you rest in, when that becomes your reason for living, because that's going to fail you. Woe to you who rich because you have already received your consolation. Uh, woe to you, consolation is the same as comfort. Woe to you who are full, you're going to be hungry. It's not a problem if you're full and you're going to be hungry and you trust in God. Because you realize, blessed are the hungry, they shall be full. But when your faith and your trust is in being full, and all of a sudden you're not, like how many of you realized you had a problem with the gas, and and you needed gas, and you looked around, and all the gas stations were empty? Yeah? You're like, oh no, what am I going to do? And it's just then that you realize how important it is to have gas in your car. Um, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who are laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. It's all about if you, judgment is coming to those who totally rest in the fact 
that they always are laughing. And life is never bad for me. I can laugh through anything. I can, I'm always full. I always have what I need to eat. I always am rich. I have exactly what I want. I can control my situation. Kind of like what y'all were saying earlier about control, manipulation, having a comfort and, and safety in, in this world. Well, and then he says here, woe to you when speak, people speak well of you. When people speak well of you, that ought to be a warning. Because so their fathers did to the false prophets. I mean, people in the past spoke really nicely of people who were false prophets. Does not mean, just because people like you does not mean you're doing the right thing. Just because people like you does not mean you're in the right place. Just because people, you ought not to say, well, I'm good with God because everybody seems to like me. I'm good with God because I have money. I'm good with God because I'm full. I have all I need to eat. I'm good with God because I'm never sad. That is not what makes you right with God. Any other uh, comments or anything um, about, I think I have one more. Can you find one of these common, uh, one is, what is the common characteristic among these states? Why do you think pursuing this is inherently foolish? Temporary. Yes, it's temporary. All of these are extremely temporary. They're not eternally focused. Not kingdom of God focused. So I'm on a personal feelings, almost all of them are appetite-driven. Notice this. Rich, power. Full, hunger. Laughter. Spirit. Reputation. Almost all of them are connected with your appetite or your personal feelings. Alright. Um, we don't have time for this last uh, segment, but I want to... Um, we'll just wait for next week to do this. I hope... That this has been, this is not exactly where I want to end it, end tonight, but we don't have enough time to go any further. I don't want to keep you late. So we're going to stop at this point and we'll pick up next time we talk about Jesus' value system. This will allow us actually to go a little further, which is good, because um, we can go into judging not, we can go into the tree, we can go to the rest of chapter 6 next week. Yes, ma'am. Um, Kay, if you, most of you know Kay, but she just sent me a text. She normally comes to our Bible studies. Um, if you don't know, she is the captain over yeah. the Oh no! Well, we will close with prayer, and we will mention that in our prayer. Um, thank you, guys, for your good attention. When a couple minutes over, uh, but I hope I hope this is interesting and helpful for you to reorient your thinking when it comes to living like a disciple of Christ. It's different than the world. It's not focused on the temporary things. This world is focused on the eternal. Father, we thank you for the time we spent together tonight. I pray for KL. And the girl on the volleyball team who was sent to the ER, pray you would protect her during this uh, difficult time. Pray that you would, uh, as she's transported there, that everything goes smoothly and that she would be okay and that you would uh, just help her to heal from this injury. We thank you for uh, teaching us through your word tonight, and I pray that we would be um, receptive to how it should change us. Thank you, Lord, for the time we've been able to spend together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thanks, guys. Uh, stick around as long as you want. There is food for you, so help yourself and coffee.